0: Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, Cassus Belli Project. In the last episode, we covered the Malaya Campaign and how the Japanese were able to fight their way south to Singapore. In this episode, we'll discuss the actual battle for Singapore and the fall of the Great Eastern Citadel. Before we get into that though, I realized there were a few other invasions in the Japanese Blitz that I haven't covered yet, so we'll go over those before picking up where we left off last time. As always, if you have any questions or corrections, you can contact me at Cassusbellyguy at gmail.com. I know I sometimes ask you to like the show on SoundCloud or iTunes, but really, just by listening, you're helping the show, so thank you. I also will have some additional links and information on the website with this episode, including articles from the ABC about Australian POWs. I want to start putting more multimedia elements into the website to provide information that I didn't go into depth on during the show. So if you're interested in that, check out the website at CassisbellyPodcast.com. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's begin episode 19, The Honor of the Empire. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget. As we discussed in previous installments, the Japanese launched dozens of invasions and landings in the hours immediately following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. They invaded Wake Island, Thailand, Malaya, and the Philippines, as we already know, but they also launched attacks on Guam and Hong Kong. Following these initial invasions, they would also take New Britain, New Ireland, and the Solomon Islands in January 1942. The battle for Guam was a quick and rather predetermined affair. The United States did not consider Guam to be a particularly critical asset, and thus did not defend it all that heavily. The garrison only consisted of about 500 marines and sailors. On the morning of December 8th, the Japanese began bombing the island with land-based aircraft out of Saipan, and more or less pummeled the island for two full days. They had been reconnoitering the island since March, and knew exactly where to strike to most effectively hinder the American defense. On the morning of December 10th, the invasion began in earnest. That morning, 400 Japanese landed on the island and quickly moved inland. Then, a second force, consisting of almost 4,000 men, landed on the north of the island. The American garrison was doomed. After some brief fighting, the Americans surrendered, suffering only 17 killed in action, and only inflicting 7 casualties total on the Japanese. Several American sailors did escape capture, however, and one even managed to evade the Japanese for the duration of the entire occupation until 1944, with the help of the local population. Hong Kong would not fall so easily. The British had known that Hong Kong was the target of Japanese aggression for decades, really. They must have seen the writing on the wall after the Japanese had gobbled up so much of the Western Pacific and East Asia in late 1941. Hong Kong was an important and profitable asset in the Far East for the British, and they certainly were loath to see it lost, but it wasn't considered a strategic outpost in the same way that Singapore was. That's not to say the island was not well defended, however. The garrison consisted of roughly 14,000 troops, including regular British Army, Indian Army, the nascent Hong Kong Chinese Regiment, the Royal Hong Kong Regiment, Canadian Army, some Royal Marines, and even a small number of Free French. Since 1936, the British had been constructing and improving the Gin Drinkers Line, a series of bunkers and trenches located in the new territories to the north of Hong Kong Island on the mainland. The mainland. Despite this, Hong Kong was not exactly a fortress either. There were only five Allied aircraft on the island, and a request for a fighter squadron had been recently rejected. Even worse, the British troops stationed there were neither motivated nor prepared for serious kinetic action. On top of that, the invading Japanese force was four times larger than the defending, had ample recent combat experience, and plenty of air support. The odds were heavily stacked against the Commonwealth forces. The invasion began with simultaneous air attacks on Kai Tak airfield and overland invasions of Kowloon and the New Territories, consisting of mainland areas belonging to British Hong Kong. The aerial attack achieved its goal of destroying Allied air capability without difficulty and established Japanese air superiority for the remainder of the battle. That isn't to say the Allies received no aerial support at all, however. Eight American pilots of the China National Aviation Corporation ran resupply sorties into the city in the first few days of the battle. The land invasion consisted of the Japanese 21st, 23rd, and 38th Regiments commanded by General Takashi Sakai. They forded the Shenzhen River uncontested and advanced southward toward the Gin Drinkers Line, which was the linchpin of Commonwealth defenses. Gin Drinkers Line was supposed to be a formidable defense and was conceived as the Maginot Line of the East, Unfortunately for the Allies, it performed about as well as its French counterpart. Defending the line were three battalions, the 2nd Battalion Royal Scots, the 2nd Battalion 14th Punjab Regiment, and the 5th Battalion 7th Rajput Regiment. This was far from sufficient. Though the defenses were formidable, they were not adequately manned. The Shing Mun Redoubt, for example, was intended to be defended by a company. In reality, it was only defended by a single platoon. The second major problem for the defense was the Commonwealth soldiers' lack of experience or even sufficient training. This, coupled with the British underestimation of the Japanese, led to the fall of the line in only three days. Japanese recon elements quickly learned just how undermanned the defenses were and found a key point left dismally weak. The position was the high ground, occupied by the vulnerable Mun Redoubt, which overlooked the western portion of the line. At 9 o'clock at night, on December 9th, a squad was dispatched to breach the defenses. They were extremely successful. After breaching the wire obstacles to the bunkers, they blew them up and took 27 prisoners. By 7 o'clock the next morning, they had created a gap in gin drinkers' line. Japanese leadership was almost alarmed at their success, though. They had estimated that it would require a month to attrit and break through, and here they had a gap to exploit on the second day. After some brief deliberation, They agreed they might as well launch a general assault and exploit their gains. On December 10th, they launched a two-pronged offensive against the line and essentially overwhelmed it. At noon, the commander on the ground, Major General Christopher Maltby, knew the battle was lost and ordered his men to withdraw to Hong Kong proper. The Rajputs would fight a delaying action as a rearguard, while the other two battalions withdrew. On December 13th, they themselves withdrew and the Japanese were poised to invade Hong Kong Island. Before beginning the assault on the island, the Japanese demanded its surrender, but the garrison commander and governor refused. Thus, the Japanese began bombing the north shore of the island, and again demanded its surrender on December 17th, after two days of bombardment. Again, the British refused. So in the evening of the 18th, the Japanese crossed Victoria Harbor and landed on the northeastern shore of the island. They encountered little resistance and were able to organize on the morning of the 19th to continue their advance. The British had divided their defenses into an eastern command and a western command. The western command fell quickly, and the eastern command fell back to a redoubt on the Stanley Peninsula. Without access to fresh water, though, the clock was ticking for the Commonwealth forces. By the 25th, the jig was up. The governor surrendered, and the first British crown colony had fallen. The day has since been remembered as Black Christmas in Hong Kong. As they did elsewhere in Asia and the Pacific, the Japanese engaged in massacres and mass executions in Hong Kong. As they advanced, rather than take men prisoner, they often summarily executed anyone who surrendered to them. The worst atrocity occurred at St. Stephen's College, where Field Hospital had been established. After capturing the campus, the Japanese murdered the wounded in their beds and raped the nurses. This was the worst, but by no means the only massacre. At least 11 other mass murders were recorded, in which... At least 10 men, but as many as 50, were killed at once. All told, the Japanese suffered about 6,000 casualties, of whom about 1,900 were killed. The Allies lost 2,200 killed, 1,300 wounded, and an additional 10,000 were captured. Like all across the Western Pacific, Allied garrisons and strongholds collapsed far quicker than anyone had expected due to a combination of inexperience and hubris. As all the campaigns already mentioned progressed, the Japanese also launched an invasion of Burma, another extension of the British Empire. Though Burma is rugged, crossed by mountains, and covered in jungle, the Japanese had several reasons to seize it. First, they needed to lock down their western marches. Not only was this an overland route to Thailand and Malaya, but it also contained the Burma Road, a route through which the Allies funneled supplies to nationalist Chinese forces resisting the Japanese. Burma is also rich in resources, like cobalt, but also had plentiful rice fields needed to feed the Japanese army. So on December 14th, the Japanese began their Burmese campaign. Their initial movements were uncontested and accompanied by the usual aerial attacks on key positions. Unlike in many other instances, the Allies actually put up some resistance in the air during the Japanese raids on Rangoon. The RAF, assisted by the Flying Tigers the famous American volunteers fighting to defend China from the Japanese. Despite the heroic efforts of the pilots, there were no help in fending off ground assaults. As the Japanese 143rd Infantry Regiment advanced westward, the airfields fell one by one. The defense on the ground was mostly carried out by regular British Army and Indian Army units, and like everywhere else, they could hardly withstand the Japanese onslaught. Their first major encounter came with a Japanese attack on the Salween River, to the east of Rangoon. Here, the defender positions were almost completely untenable, and they quickly retreated to the Sitang River to defend a key bridge. Here again, the defenders were unable to hold their ground, and fell back after blowing the bridge. The Allies were now severely weakened, and in dire straits in Rangoon. General Wavell, who we recall was in overall command of ABDACOM, was expecting some reinforcements, who landed in Rangoon in February of 1942, but it was too little. Rather than fight while surrounded in the city, the British chose to withdraw and raise the city to deny it to the Japanese. With the fall of Rangoon, the Japanese made important headway and had opened fighting in what would eventually become the oft-forgotten China-India-Burma theater of the war. Though they had achieved success, they had by no means won an outright victory, the Allies were retreating and intended to fend the country farther north. The going would be excruciating for both sides. The Burmese hinterland is unforgiving country, and very few men and resources were assigned to it. The conflict would drag on more or less inconclusively for the remainder of the war. As their initial offensives picked up steam, or wrapped up entirely, the Japanese began picking off their secondary objectives. This included the Solomon Islands Campaign, including the islands of New Britain and New Ireland just to the east of New Guinea. These islands were not particularly well defended, but all had garrisons of the Australian army. Fighting began on January 20th, 1942, when the Japanese landed a force at Rabaul, at the northeastern tip of New Britain. The island was defended by Lark Force, numbering about 1,400 men, consisting mostly of Australian army soldiers, but also members of the local militia force. The militia, the New Guinea Volunteer Rifles, was comprised of white settlers were drawn up in 1939. As was the case elsewhere, the defenders were badly outnumbered. The Japanese allocated 5,000 men to the capture of New Britain, and also had far more aircraft available. After hard fighting and a valiant defense, the island fell. Almost all of the Australian soldiers were taken prisoner, and the situation was nearly identical on the rest of the islands. The Australian commandos defending New Ireland did their utmost, but were defeated, and the archipelago was ripe for further Japanese conquest. They hoped to turn around to the southern coast of New Guinea and expand their conquest towards Fiji, and possibly even invade the Australian mainland. They still needed to invade and consolidate the Dutch East Indies, however, and they were beginning to feel the effects of being stretched over such a vast empire. Now, you might be asking yourself, Yeah, the Japanese lashed out across the western Pacific, but why did they feel the need to snatch up all of these seemingly inconsequential little islands dotted across the ocean? Well, that would be a very good question. Obviously, seizing Singapore and Malaya not only removed a strong Allied position from which to stage air and naval attacks, but it also blocked Allied advances from that direction. Taking the Dutch East Indies provided them with desperately needed oil and once again denied the Allies critical air bases. But what about Guam and Wake and the Solomons? Why do the Japanese even bother? Well, the answer is twofold. The first reason was to expand their defense in depth. By capturing island chains further and further out, the Japanese could create a series of defensive lines from which to fall back to. Islands make excellent aircraft carriers because they can't sink. In a theater of war dominated by ships and the sea, having aircraft available is a huge advantage because they can see and strike farther than just ships. Secondly, the Japanese needed to interdict Allied shipping. Early in 1942, the United States was already beginning to ferry men and materiel to Australia, and if they could block or disrupt that, they could significantly impair Allied operations in the theater. That's why they wanted to push even further into the southwestern Pacific. By May 1942, they had more or less reached their apex, though. They could hardly hold the ground they had already taken, but we're not quite there yet. By February 1942, Singapore was still standing at the very tip of the Malay Peninsula. Japanese forces were gathering across the Strait of Johor and Australian troops were conducting reconnaissance patrols across the water to determine just exactly what the Japanese planned to do. What they found were massive staging areas just to the northwest of the Strait. Inexplicably though, Allied Command didn't act on those reports. Rather than shelling the assembly areas or logistics caches, the command and staff arbitrarily believed that the invasion would come from the northeast. True, the Allies had limited artillery rounds and probably wanted to use them only when they knew they, they would be most effective when interdicting the enemy before the invasion began. But, perhaps by shelling the assembly areas, they could have evened the odds. On February 3rd, the Japanese began their air and artillery bombardment of Allied positions. For five days, the Japanese wreaked havoc on Allied preparations by dismantling defensive works and cutting communication lines to the rear with their indirect fire. On paper though, the Allies looked to be in at least moderately good shape. Lieutenant General Percival, commander of the Singapore garrison and the defense of the island, had 85,000 men at his disposal. True, many of them were either totally green, or ill-equipped, or not combat ready, or some combination thereof, but he still had a force. In the evening of February 8th, 1942, the Japanese launched their boats across the Strait of Johor towards the northwestern coast of the island of Singapore. With what light they had, many of the floodlights had been destroyed during Japanese preparatory bombardment, Australian machine gunners spotted the boats and opened fire. The first wave consisted of 4,000 troops who maneuvered their way onto Sarambun Beach. They would be followed by two more waves, until a total of 13,000 men were ashore on the far side of the strait. Over the course of five hours, the Japanese pushed their way ashore and infiltrated the defensive lines by following the many creeks that ran inland, climbing up through innumerable mangrove thickets. By one in the morning, the Australian positions were being overrun, and General Bennett, the Australian commander, committed his reserve. By the next morning, the situation had not improved. Some units were down to half strength, and others had become isolated when the left and right units caved. Unable to hold the coast, Percival allowed the units in the northwest to fall back to the Jurong Line, located just west of the center of the island, facing westward, to block the Japanese from moving east. They would not simply retreat, however, and fought a fighting retrograde all the way back. Attempts were made to hold Tenga Airfield in the northwest, but the Japanese were able to maintain their tempo and pace and secure the airfield despite Allied attempts to hold it. In a last-ditch effort to slow the tide of Japanese troops crossing the strait, two British patrol craft were sent up the strait to destroy Japanese landing craft. As they motored north, they were attacked by small arms fire from both banks, but managed to sink a few landing craft, putting a small dent in the Japanese logistics effort. It was too little, too late though. Had a brown water force been dispatched earlier and in greater numbers, perhaps they could have made a difference. As the Battle of Sarambun Beach in the northwest of the island was wrapping up, the Japanese launched their second invasion in the center of the northern shore. The key terrain here was the Johor-Singapore Causeway, which provided a vital supply route across the strait. In order to do this, the Japanese intended to capture Kranji Village, just to the west of the Causeway Bridge. The Japanese had elected to commit a brigade to this objective, however only two Australian battalions were allocated to defend this zone. Though they hadn't been engaged during the previous day's fighting, they had reoriented themselves to protect their left flank, which was now threatened by the massive Japanese success at Sarambun. The evening of January 9th, the Japanese crossed the strait and began their landings near Kranji. Here, the fighting was intense, and the Japanese suffered their greatest casualties during the entire battle for Singapore. Despite heavy Australian machine gun and mortar fire, the Japanese were able to establish a beat front, at which point the Japanese artillery switched from harassing allied positions to defending the ones the Japanese had gained. With the beachhead secure, the Japanese were able to start towing tanks across the water and get them into the fray. Unable to hold the line against such a numerically superior force with heavy artillery support, the Australians fell back. They were to join the men from the Serembun area in the defense of the Jurong line along the canal. As they moved south, engineers blew the causeway, Preventing the Japanese from using it to funnel supplies southward until they could repair it. At the Jurong line, the fighting would rage on until February when the Japanese began to break through. On February 9th, several of Percival's commanders received a communication from him which they misinterpreted as instructions to abandon their positions and move further east. This created a gap in the line which the Japanese were able to exploit. On February 10th, when what had happened became clear to all, Percival ordered a battalion to retake the positions and close the line. As the battalion, known as X Battalion, a cobbled-together force of untrained Australian soldiers, prepared to attack from their assembly area in Bukit Tama, the Japanese launched a spoiling attack and caught the ad hoc force completely off guard. Despite their lack of training, the Australians fought hard and forced the Japanese into a bayonet fight for the town. By midnight, though, the village was firmly in the hands of the Japanese 5th Division, and only a third of X battalion remained standing. On February 11th, the Allies attempted to counterattack with two brigades, but were repulsed. With the campaign going poorly, Winston Churchill sent a message to General Wavell, urging him to stiffen resistance on the island. I think you ought to realize the way we view the situation in Singapore. It was reported to Cabinet by the Chief of the Imperial General Staff that Percival has over 100,000 men, of whom 33,000 are British, and 17,000 are Australian. It is doubtful whether the Japanese have as many in the whole Malay Peninsula. In these circumstances, the defenders must greatly outnumber Japanese forces who have crossed the Straits, and in a well-contested battle, they should destroy them. There must, at this stage, be no thought of saving the troops or sparing the population. The battle must be fought to the bitter end at all costs. The 18th Division has a chance to make its name in history, Commanders and senior officers should die with their troops. The honor of the British Empire and of the British Army is at stake. I rely on you to show no mercy to weakness in any form. With the Russians fighting as they are, and the Americans so stubborn at Luzon, the whole reputation of our country and our race is involved. It is expected that every unit will be brought into close contact with the enemy and fight it out. End quote. On the left side of the Allied line, the Japanese had made significant gains as well. They had managed to advance all the way down to the town of Pasir Pajang. Here, the 1st Malay Regiment blocked the advance towards Singapore City. The Malays would not surrender the town at all, and put up some of the stiffest resistance seen anywhere thus far in the Pacific War. The initial Japanese attack began at 2 in the afternoon of February 13th when the Japanese 56th Infantry Regiment encountered B Company of the 1st Malay Regiment, defending west of the town. The fight was ferocious, and the Malays engaged hand-to-hand in hand-to-hand and bayonet fighting with the Japanese. Under heavy artillery fire and being massively outnumbered, B Company retreated to the main defensive line that night. At 8.30 a.m. on the 14th, the Japanese initiated a massive artillery and mortar bombardment before launching a general offensive. The Malays managed to fend off this attack, however, and once again had to defend their positions at bayonet point in some places. The Japanese were not coded so easily, though, and launched another attack at four in the afternoon. This attack had armored support, however, and managed to beat back the Malays' right unit. The next day, they had to abandon their positions and move further east to get on line again. At this point, C Company of the 1st Malay Regiment was ordered to hold Bukit Chandu, or Opium Hill, which jutted forward from the line and overlooked the entire battlefield. Not only that, but just behind the hill lie a massive artillery store and hospital, If the Japanese were able to take the hill, these two locations would be wide open to capture. The Japanese attack in a rather unusual way, though. Rather than moving tactically, the Japanese donned captured uniforms of the Indian Army and covered themselves with mud and grease in an attempt to pass themselves off as Indian troops. C Company, commanded by Lieutenant Adnan Saidi, a Malay Muslim, sniffed out the ruse immediately. When the Japanese formation got close enough, the Malays opened fire and absolutely massacred the Japanese, repaying the intended mischief with interest. This was only the beginning of the Japanese assault though. Two hours later, the Japanese resumed their offensive with a bonsai charge up the hill. The attack was devastating. Supported by artillery and tanks, the Japanese intended to completely overwhelm the defenders. Lieutenant Saidi was adamant, however, and had encouraged his men to fight like devils. The Malays fought the Japanese tooth and nail at close quarters. They were completely cut off. The right unit was separated from them by a burning canal, and they never surrendered, fighting to the last man. Accounts differ. Some say Lieutenant Saidi was killed in the fighting, and some say he was captured and executed for his stubborn defense. For his heroism though, Lieutenant Saidi is remembered as a national hero in Malaya and Singapore. After the Battle of Pasir Pajang, the writing was on the wall. Though Percival had received instructions not to surrender from both Wavell and Churchill, he didn't have the heart to fight to the end. On February 14th, with no fresh water supplies, barely any food or ammunition on hand, and morale and discipline evaporating by the minute, General Percival decided to end the battle. An envoy was sent over to Japanese lines indicating the garrison was ready to surrender. The envoy returned at 5.30pm on February 15th indicating the hostilities would cease at 10.30 that night when a Japanese flag would be hoisted above the tallest building. Singapore had fallen. With Singapore captured, the Allies suffered immensely. 5,000 men had died in the defense of the city, and another 80,000 had been wounded or captured. For this, the Japanese paid the price of roughly 4,000 casualties. Over the course of the entire Malaya campaign, The Allies suffered 8,700 casualties and 130,000 men captured. In exchange, the Japanese sustained almost 10,000 casualties. The failure of the British Army to defend the Malay Peninsula and hold Singapore was the greatest military defeat the British had suffered in centuries. Not only had they lost nearly every engagement, but they had done so against a numerically inferior force. But why were they so unsuccessful in their defense? Well, I would argue there were two primary reasons. First, The level of military readiness throughout the Far East was abysmally low. Units were ill-equipped and ill-trained. In addition, many units, especially the British regular army ones, were not highly motivated. They likely felt that they had been relegated to the end of the earth and wished to be fighting back in Europe. This is evidenced by the fact that many contemporary accounts explicitly state that the indigenous units fought harder and displayed greater heroism. Secondly, The Japanese were simply much more experienced and aggressive in combat. They always moved rapidly and violently, never giving the Allies a moment's rest. When it really came down to it in the final battle for Singapore, the Japanese were outnumbered and at the end of a long supply line. But they knew the British defense was shaky. They had beaten Allied troops all the way down the peninsula, and wagered that if they just pressed on, they could force a surrender. And they were right. Had they waited to consolidate and husband their strength, the Allies may have been able to mount a tougher defense. The Battle of Singapore was by no means a foregone conclusion. The Japanese were able to secure their victory through bold defensive action by setting the tempo of the battle. The whole of the Malaya Campaign is a textbook example and how to use rapid and violent maneuver to defeat a numerically superior foe. The Japanese still had much fighting to do, however. The men who had participated in the Malaya Campaign would get to rest for a short time but the campaigns for the Dutch East Indies were just getting underway, and the naval campaigns in the Eastern Indian Ocean and Coral Sea were only just getting started. Though I would have liked to, I didn't cover the treatment of Australian POWs, so go to the website at casusbellypodcast.com to get more information on that. There I have also posted maps, so you can get a better idea of how the fall of Singapore played out, and see a picture of Lieutenant Saidi, who I just think is a boss. Thanks for listening, and hear from me again shortly.